We're going to be continuing our, our, our series in the book of Esther. Uh, tonight we'll be actually beginning the expositional verse-by-verse study through the book. Um, our last time together gave you just a, a brief introduction last time, and, and I talked about the main theme of the book or the story of Esther, and that is hope for God's people. That even when you might feel that he's not present in your circumstances, or you might feel that he's just not paying attention to the difficulties that you're going through, well, the truth of the matter is, of course, that God is always present in the lives and the circumstances, all the circumstances of his people, even, and I would say, especially in difficulties. I also gave a brief description of the key players or the key uh, characters in the story of Esther. Not everybody, but the key, the key players. And then uh, I gave a, an overview or a, a high-level outline of the entire story, the whole book of Esther. So tonight, like I said, we're going to be starting our study, actual study, through the story or the book of Esther. We'll be looking at the first nine verses, so that's chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, which introduce us to King Ahasuerus. And um, he's one of our key players, and we're going to, we'll begin to see what kind of a man and what kind of a king he was. So if you'd like to join me in Esther chapter 1, let's read the first nine verses. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, Vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do 
as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay, let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Let me reread them. Uh, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So what we see in these opening verses of the book, we are basically introduced to King Ahasuerus. And like I said, he is, as we will find out as the story develops, he's a key character in this story. And the author begins with, with these words, in the days of Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus was the king of Persia, which is where the story of Esther takes place. At this point in history, Israel is in captivity. Because of deep and serious idolatrous sin resulting in the Lord's judgment on Israel, Babylon had conquered Israel. And then subsequently, Persia then conquered Babylon. So the people of Israel as captives were essentially inherited by Persia. Now, I want to just real briefly here remind you of a series that Pastor Tim taught through the book of Daniel. In that series, we studied Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of of Babylon at the time. We studied Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a four-section statue. If you were part of that study, hopefully you remember that. In that series, Pastor Tim explained to us that the statue was symbolic, that it was, a, it was a prophetic dream of four world-dominating empires, of which Persia was the second. And Persia was represented by the silver section of the statue. I'm not going to go into any more detail because there's a lot of detail in that. But if you're interested, the study is out there. You could certainly re-listen to those. The point of me bringing this up and reminding you of this is that God ordained and prophesied in advance that Persia would be the world dominant power at this time, at the time of Esther. This is the reason King Ahasuerus, it's God ordained, this is why King Ahasuerus has the wealth the power and the authority that he has that we are going to be developing and looking at. It was all ordained by God. And it was all for the purpose of serving, or it was all for serving his, God's purpose in redemptive history. So there's just a little bit of background. Now, King Ahasuerus, we're told, reigned over the entire Persian Empire. And it, it's described as being from India to Ethiopia. 
And then there's an added qualifier here of over 127 provinces. And I think what's happening here is the author is communicating to his readers. He's emphasizing the vastness of the king's rule, just how much power this one man had. Now, this was an enormous territory. On a current map, the territory would stretch from southern Pakistan all the way over and down to, to northern uh, Sudan in Africa. It's a, a very, very large territory. It was basically, at the time, it was basically the known world. And King Ahasuerus was sovereign over this entire region, over the greatest, the largest, and the most powerful nation known to man up to that point in history. The Persian Empire is what we would call the world superpower of the day. There was no one more powerful. And what this did was this made King Ahasuerus the most powerful man in the world. And then finally we're told in these verses that that the king, King Ahasuerus, ruled from his royal throne in Susa the citadel or the the capital city of the empire. And this is, of course, where his palace and his court were located in in the citadel. The main focus of our story, the entire story and the location of most of the key events in the book of Esther take place right there in the capital city of Susa. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 now. It says, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So what we've seen so far is that King Ahasuerus was clearly a man of great power. In these verses, we begin to learn, however, that he was a man of questionable character. One of the first characteristics we're going to learn about him is that he was a man who liked to party. Okay, we're told that he gave a feast. This was a party. And it must have been some incredible feast. Let's just take a quick look at his guest list. It says his officials, all of his officials, all of his servants, all of the nobles and the governors of the over 127 provinces that he ruled. Then we're also told that the Persian and the Media army were included in this feast. Now, the word that we've translated here to army, the the, the original word, it, it has a literal meaning that would include the entirety of the army, every single man in the army. But 
And I just want to point this out. Most commentators agree that it was most likely the military leaders who were present, not the entire army. And I, I lean in the direction of agreeing with that, given you know, the, 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 the total number of men comprising the army must have been enormous. So realistically, like I said, I tend to agree that it was most likely the military leaders that were there at the feast. The, the point is, the point the author is drawing to our attention here is that this feast, this incredible feast, and what the king was doing at this feast was meant to be known throughout all of Persia. The guests represented the entirety of the empire so that through those present, everyone throughout the empire would hear of this great feast, of this elaborate feast, of what was done, what was shown, what was displayed. Now, feasts like this usually, if not always, have specific purposes. I want to give you just three examples from our culture of what what I'm talking about. You'll be familiar with these. We have in our culture what we call, or, or we have wedding feasts, right? We call them wedding receptions, right? The purpose is to honor the bride and groom and to celebrate the newly formed marriage, right? You're familiar with that. We have birthday feasts or birthday parties. Purpose there is to honor the the birthday boy or girl, to celebrate another year of life. We have graduation feasts or graduation parties. Again, the purpose is to honor the one graduating and to celebrate the accomplishments that are represented by the graduation. Now, here in verse 3, verse 3 clearly and explicitly tells us that King Ahasuerus gave this feast for all of these guests that he invited. But the question is, what was the king's purpose for this feast? Was it to honor and thank all of his political and military leaders for their loyal and faithful service to him and the empire? Was it to reward all of his officials and servants for the great job they were doing in serving king and country? Was it to maybe publicly recognize and reward the governors um, uh, of of all of these provinces that he ruled over? That's the question. What was his purpose in it? Verse 3 leads us to this question. But verse 4 clearly answers it for us. You see, the king had no such noble intent for gathering all of these guests together for this feast. No, the king's intent, I think, is very clear. His purpose in having and hosting this feast, it was all about self-glorification. This was not an occasion to celebrate the vastness of the empire the strength of the military, or the faithfulness of those who served the king and the empire. 
No, this was an occasion from the king's perspective. It was an occasion strictly and solely to celebrate King Ahasuerus. It was an opportunity for the king to display all that he possessed. For those who were present to actually gaze upon all that he puts before them. And then for everyone else throughout the empire to hear of all that happened, all that took place to hear of the king's greatness. Just listen to some of the descriptors the author uses in verse 4. I'm, I'm convinced that this is meant to give us a glimpse of how the king viewed himself, what he thought of himself. Look at where it says, the riches of his royal glory. It's kind of interesting wording, don't you think? The riches of his royal glory. See, we're not, we're not talking here about the vastness of the empire or the, or the power and strength of the military. He was not standing with his leaders saying, look at all that we have accomplished. Look at what we've done together. No, this was all about the riches of his royal glory. Now, <clears throat> riches in, in this context means literally accumulated materialistic wealth and possessions. And the word glory in the original language has to do with tremendous honor that has been bestowed upon a deserving individual. These are the words that are used to describe this here. So I see this as King Ahasuerus viewed his great wealth and the vastness of his power and his authority as what he had accomplished and what he deserved. It was all about him. He didn't view this as a blessing. He didn't attach any type of responsibility to it. He didn't see any purpose for it other than his own gratification. He didn't see a bigger picture than himself. He certainly was not thankful for it. From his perspective, I believe he looked at it like this. It was his, he deserved it, and it was all for his pleasure, his glorification. And then look where it says, the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Let me, let me define and explain these words that are used here. Splendor in the original language, it, it means rareness and value. Um, as attributed to like precious stones. So what we're talking about here is inherent value. So King Ahasuerus, he viewed himself as being inherently valuable. It wasn't his, he didn't see it as it was his position as king that gave him value. But he was king because of his great value from his perspective. 
The word that we've translated to pomp, in the original language, it literally means physical beauty. I looked at some other translations, and other, other translations translate it to things like excellent majesty or glory. And then greatness means it's, 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 it's describing or talking about the depth and the breadth of his rule and authority. His rule and authority stretching over, like I said, all of the known world. And the depth of it knew no bounds. He was sovereign. So the king viewed all that he possessed, his wealth, his possessions, his power, and his authority as being his. He had all of this because of who he was, because of what kind of man he was. Inherently, it all had to do with him. I believe this is how King Ahasuerus viewed himself. Now, let's get back to his purpose for having this great feast. Verse 4 tells us that the feast was given for the purpose of showing all of those present, all that he's showing to them, all of his greatness, all of his wealth, all of his riches, all of his elaborate possessions to display all of this to them, to show it to them. And remember this, this lavish display, it went on not for a day or two, but for 180 days, 180 days. That's six months. That's half a year, day after day. That is a lot of the king telling and showing all of his guests himself over and over and over again. Have you ever been around someone who's constantly talking about himself? You know, somebody who, who bridges every topic, every subject, every story into something about himself. It's, it's exhausting for most people to be around someone like that. And if truth be told, I think that most of us try our best to avoid people like that. King Ahasuerus, I think he was like that, but he was a little bit different. He had, um, he had great, and, and when I say great, I mean in magnitude, <laughs> he had great power and great wealth. And with that type of power and wealth and authority, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he probably had a pretty captive audience in his guests. I would presume that that those who were there, those who were invited to this feast, I don't think that they would dare turn down the invitation or just simply not show up. They pretty much knew that they had... No choice but to show up and to show up prepared to applaud the king's greatness over and over and over and over again 
for 180 days. That is what this feast was all about. That was the king's purpose for this feast. Now, one would think that after 180 days of partying, of feasting, of doing all that was done, of displaying himself and all of his riches, one would think that the king would be tired and be ready for a little quiet time at home, right? But look at the next section, verses 5 through 8. It says, And when these days were completed, the 180 days, when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, another feast here, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So, after a six-month, ongoing, non-stop feast, what would any reasonable, wise, and responsible king do? Have another party, right? <laughs> well, that's exactly what King Ahasuerus did. Now, it's true, this feast was not nearly as long as the first one. It was only seven days. But it, just stop and think about that for a moment. I mean, can you imagine having a seven-day-long party? It's hard for me to imagine. You know, we do a lot of, of, of church-related um, entertaining, if you will, at our house, where we have relatively large groups of people over it at our house. <laughs> never 180 days, never seven days. Most of the time, it's, it's a few hours, maybe up to like half a day, something like that. And please don't get me wrong. Please understand, I love it. I absolutely love it. I love serving the Lord in this way. I would never trade it for anything. I love it. But I do have to admit to you that on these occasions, after it's all over, you know, after the last person leaves, I sit down in my chair in the living room and it's like, ah, it's nice to sit down. It's nice to relax, to enjoy the quiet, right? I just cannot even imagine seven day long, nonstop party. Can't imagine it. And remember, this was the short one. Yeah. Only seven days, right? Right. 
Okay, so the guest list on, on this feast, slightly different than the longer one. This one was comprised of, we're told, all the inhabitants of the capital city of Susa. It says great and small. Now, presumably, some of the great people from Susa were also at the longer, the six-month feast. But we're told here that even the small people of Susa were included in this seven-day feast. And I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm presuming that that means all of the inhabitants, working class, peasants, you know, all of the small people of Susa. But even with this added demographic, there were most likely at this seven-day feast, there were fewer guests than were present at the, the longer, the 180-day feast. We're told that this feast took place in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So it's a different venue, slightly different venue, but based on the description, no less elaborate. You see, what's happening here is the text is building for us, putting together for us an image of King Ahasuerus. I hope that you're seeing that as we go through this. The focus shifts somewhat. First, we were looking at the king's, all of the king's provinces, all of his, his power, a, a high-level description of his wealth. And to some, to some greater detail, the, 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 the elaborateness of, of all of his possessions. And that's what we're going to be looking at here. Now, in these verses, some commentators have said that the description given in these verses, verses 5 through 8, is hyperbole. Hyperbole is intentional exaggeration used to make a point. I don't think so. I don't agree with that. I I don't see any reason to think that this description involves any level of exaggeration. I believe that that these verses, and, and specifically, I'm, I'm referring here to verses 6 and 7 that give us this description. I believe that those verses are an accurate description of the actual accommodations. In fact, I'm going to go one step further and say, I think that this is most likely a representative list of the actual accommodations, meaning that there was probably much more than what is listed in these two verses. The king here was displaying his great and extreme wealth as a means of exalting and glorifying himself in the presence of all of his subjects, great and small. Now, I'm not going to go into tremendous detail about every single um, item mentioned here, but I do want to take a look at a few just so that we can gain a greater understanding of the point that the author is drawing to our attention. Let's look at at a couple of these things together. Uh, The text describes 
couches of gold and silver. We all know what a couch is, right? Most of us have at least one in, in our living room, right? So what I've done, and I'll be quick about this, but I've put together a modern equivalent of a couch of gold, okay? So follow me here for just a second. Gold, at the time I originally put my outline together, it might have changed a little bit, but gold was or is selling for $1,926 per ounce. Okay, that comes to $30,816 per pound. Okay? Now, I did a quick Google search asking the question, what does the average couch weigh? I came up with 350 pounds. There might be couches that weigh more, there might be couches that weigh less. I'm going to go with 350 pounds. That's what Google told me was what the average couch weighed. Okay? So, a 350-pound couch made out of gold at $30,816 per pound. This is what uh, a, a couch of gold would cost. $10,785,600. It's a lot of money. Now, we're told there wasn't one couch of gold there. We're told that there were couches of gold and silver. Now, certainly a, a, a couch of silver would cost less than a couch of gold, but it would still be very expensive. And there were multiple couches like this, right? Uh, my point in all this is th- this gives us an idea of the lavishness of the venue and the irresponsibility of the king as far as using you know, the, the, the funds, the money of the empire. We're told, uh, uh, or the, the description is given, mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. What, what, what's being described here is the ground covering of the outdoor cart court of the garden. The ground covering here. Now, I was not familiar with porphyry before preparing for this, uh, for this study, but it was a rare and precious stone at the time. It was highly prized by royalty because of its color. It is a kind of a purplish, reddish color. Highly prized, very valuable. Marble and mother of pearl, they're both well-known for their beauty and their expense, even today, right? Marble, mother of pearl, we're familiar with it. And then the description of precious stones, <laughs> meaning there are so many and such a, a variety, they're not even listed individually, just precious stones. Now, today, in our, our society today, there are four stones that are identified as precious stones. Diamond, sapphire, ruby, and emerald. Now, these are not necessarily the specific stones referenced in verse 6. I just pointed those out just so that we have an idea of what's being described when we're told precious 
stones. And again, it, it, it gives us an idea of the lavishness, in this case, of the ground covering in the court of the king's garden. The point here, even the ground you walked on was extravagant. Okay, another one is, uh, another description is of golden drinking vessels of different kinds. Now, generally in that culture, it was glass or non-precious metal that was used for drinking vessels. The gold vessels were reserved for like when the king would entertain special royal dignitaries and visitors, things like, things like that, people like that. Certainly not the common population that was there at this feast. But the king took this even to the next level by serving drinks in vessels of, the description in the text is vessels of different kinds. And without explanation, this is, this is easy to gloss over. What's being described here is vessels of different kinds. These were individually designed and crafted vessels, drinking vessels. There were no two alike. So each one was literally a unique work of art. So it not only had the inherent value of what it was made of, but that it had been, like I said, individually designed and uh, not manufactured, but crafted as a, 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 a piece of art incredibly valuable vessels, again, showing the depth of the king's wealth and the depth of his extravagance. Let's move on to the description of royal wine being served according to the bounty of the king. The first thing we've got to consider here is that this was royal wine being served meaning it was the king's own private reserve of wine, meaning that that, that this would be the best of the best of the best wine available. And then next, let's consider the amount of royal wine. It says, according to the bounty of the king. Now, this word that we've translated to bounty, it literally means hand. Okay, so this is, this is symbolic of the king's abundance, meaning it was his hand symbolically serving the wine. In this context, what we're talking about, what this means is that there was no end to the flow of wine. It was, there was no concern over running out of this wine. To run out of royal wine at a feast, it would be humiliating to the king, which means certain death to the king's personal sommelier, right? (laughs) The point here is that the king's guests could literally drink as much wine as they wanted with no fear, no concern, no possibility of running out. 
of wine. And then finally, we're, we're told of a drinking edict. Now, generally, in this culture, when the king gave a feast, the drinking of wine was highly regulated. Only when the king drank were any of the guests permitted to drink. So it wasn't just free-flowing. It was the king decided when he drank, then the guests would drink. When he wasn't drinking, the guests weren't drinking. So the king issued an edict for this particular feast. And the edict that he issued removed any and all restrictions on drinking. I believe that we're given this detail to highlight the depth of indulgence in this feast. People were permitted to drink as much as they want, wanted, whenever they wanted. No limits. Okay. So, hopefully we are all seeing here in all the details that were given about King Ahasuerus in verses 1 through 8, there's a characterization of the king that's being built for us. He's a man who has immense wealth. He has unlimited power. He's the most powerful man in the world. And he has unrivaled self-worth. He has under his control noblemen, military leaders, winemakers, stonemasons, interior decorators, furniture craftsmen, etc., etc. The list just goes on and on. He has under his control pretty much everybody. And then with, with the wealth of the empire at his command, he thinks nothing of lavishly flaunting it in front of all those under his dominion, great and small. This is King Ahasuerus. Now, there's two points that I want to make and draw to your attention. The first is the development of this key character, King Ahasuerus, in the story of Esther. We've We've learned a lot about what kind of man he was. Let's consider just for a moment what kind of man he wasn't. He lacked something very, very important for a man in his position, for a man with his power and control. He lacked humility before God. King Ahasuerus lacked an acknowledgement of God in his wealth in his power, and in his authority. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Romans eleven thirty-six, And here Paul describes this acknowledgement of God that I'm talking about, that King Ahasuerus lacked. Romans eleven thirty-six reads, From him... And through him and to him are all things. 
To him be glory forever. Amen. King Ahasuerus did not acknowledge God in this way. King Ahasuerus considered himself a god, but he wasn't. What we're going to see as this story unfolds, as we develop it throughout the story, is that King Ahasuerus is actually a pawn. He's a pawn in God's sovereign and providential plan. He doesn't know it. I mean, King Ahasuerus doesn't know it, but he is. He sees himself as a God, but in reality, he's actually a servant. He's a servant to the true and living God. And then the second point that I want to make is how our lives are meant to be impacted through this description of King Ahasuerus. It's to help us grow in our understanding of the Lord Jesus. I think that we're meant to to contrast and compare King Ahasuerus to the Lord Jesus. Ahasuerus possesses no true greatness in and of himself. But he thinks of himself and he presents himself as the greatest man on earth. Now, the Lord Jesus is actually, is truly, and is inherently great. Yet he humbled himself to accomplish salvation for his people. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I want to read verses 6 through 8. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Speaking of the Lord Jesus here, it reads, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Very, very different from King Ahasuerus, I would say. We need to remember that if we do not regularly Consider the Lord's greatness, his true greatness. If we don't, our heart and our mind is prone to consider ourselves great, as King Ahasuerus did. So I want to say for all of us and each of us, stay far away from the trap of thinking that wealth, knowledge, Authority, all of which you've been blessed, is inherently yours. It's not. Stay away from the trap of thinking that it's yours because of your inherent value. It's not. It's to serve God's purpose. 
And don't look for or find your identity or happiness in materialistic possessions. Those who do never, ever find contentment. When asked how much money is enough, the wealthy American industrialist John D. Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. Words of discontentment. <laughs> Guy had a lot of money. And, you know, when asked, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Meaning, ah, I, don't, I don't have enough yet. I want to look at two verses quickly that, uh, that point this out. First Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10 reads, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here, Paul reminds us that prioritizing and, and finding our identity in money and what it provides for us only produces bad fruit in our lives. And then from 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This reads, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And here John defines all that is in the world from the perspective of mankind's heart orientation that is in opposition to God. King Ahasuerus, what we're seeing, what we've learned, and really will continue to learn, King Ahasuerus found his identity in the things of the world. Let's not fall into that trap. We are to find our identity in the Lord Jesus, the one who is, praise God, eternal. And verse 9 says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, this final verse of tonight's study introduces us to Queen Vashti, and it leads us right into our next study. During the king's seven-day feast, the queen was having a feast of her own for all of the women in the palace. So in our next study, we're going to see the interaction between King Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti and how the Lord uses this interaction to bring Esther into the story and into the spotlight. Now, right before I close, I just want to give some, some personal application here, a couple of things to think about. When you are under the rule of those who don't hold to or follow the Lord, don't despair and don't acquiesce. Remember always that it's the Lord who truly reigns. Yeah. 
regardless of what the circumstances look like, uh, regardless of, 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 of how those in authority present themselves, it's the Lord who truly reigns. And then whoever is in authority over you, and we all have people in authority over us, all the way from, you know, the president, the governor, the mayor, to, you know, individuals directly connected to our lives, anyone who is in authority over us, remember always to pray for them, asking the Lord to provide to them, those who are in authority over us, all they need to faithfully serve him with the stewardship he has entrusted to them. Remember, they will ultimately give an account to the Lord for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful book of Esther that you've given to us to read, to study, to meditate upon. Father, I pray that you will please help us to see you in all the circumstances of this story as we as we work our way through it. Please help us to see you, training us to see you in all the circumstances of our own lives, even even when your presence is not completely and entirely obvious to us. Help us to see you in it. And Father, I pray that you will please give us the grace to leave this place tonight changed as a result of focusing our heart's attention on your holy word. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Can I have the outline? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Hold on just a second.